right, again, let's uh, take our Bibles and let's uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Is that on? Ephesians chapter 5, still not on. I think I'll just use this one right here. All right. Can you hear me now? All right, let's uh, take our Bibles, of course, to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're looking at, uh, we've moved down to verse number 31. And I've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 5, and of course the whole book of Ephesians, uh, at least in, in the, this section, foolishness and wisdom would be the, the themes driving uh, this passage. And today we're looking at a special kind of marital unity and oneness or union for husbands and wives. And it says, let me just start off by reading the passage in verse number 32 down to verse 33, verse 31, excuse me. It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall join to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning again for this privilege and opportunity to be able to have your word, to open it, to be able to see what it says, to be able to hear what it says, and, Lord, to be able by your spirit to do what it says. And I ask you, Lord, today that you would show us, show us this part of marriage that is given in a special way to a man and a woman. I pray that you would guide us through this part of the word of God. And I ask this in a way that may build up your people and edify them, um, show them their sin so they can put it off, put it to death, put on righteousness, and follow the Spirit. And I pray, Lord, you would help us, enable us to do that for the sake of, of your great name. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now, this passage uh, has been read, of course, countless number of times at weddings, past and present, and it's quite familiar to all who have participated in, in any kind of uh, wedding ceremony. Uh, but as to the passages, this passage's content and intention, it's probably as unfamiliar as the surface of the planet Neptune. And I say that quite seriously. Even as I looked at this passage of Scripture, I said there is way more here than meets the eye. See, it, I, it, might as well, it might as well be a bunch of garbled mumbo-jumbo. And yet contained in this passage is the unveiling of the great mystery of marriage as God intended it. It is actually possible to have a joy-filled, satisfying, healthy marriage while we live right here on this glorious planet. The answer, of course, if I, that was a question, the answer would be, yes, we can have a good marriage. However, we need to have our understanding concerning marriage informed by the great designer of this greatly misunderstood, diluted, undervalued institution, an institution that is daily being stripped of its sacredness and is presently slipping into obscurity right before our eyes. It is the job of the church to make sure that doesn't happen here. It is our job to do that. The church needs to recapture and keep what this great institution actually means. And 
we do that by not only understanding the word of God, but actually doing the word of God. Now, I just want to look generally at the, the mystery and unity of marriage. Verse number 28, as I have already mentioned, it says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, if you look also down to verse number 32, it says, this, it, this mystery is great. And remember, back in the beginning of Ephesians, this word mystery, which really could, it does actually mean secret teaching or veiled teaching, but here, of course, in the New Testament, it is in reference to something that was previously unknown, but now is being revealed to God's people. It remains a mystery to those who do not know Christ. However, for maturing believers, this mystery refers to the hidden purpose of God that is now revealed for our understanding and for our enjoyment. Marriage, then, is a picture that actually stands for more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. And we're ever remembering and learning about that relationship as we learn more about Christ. That's him we just sang about learning more about Christ. We don't know enough about Christ as believers. We should always be growing and striving to learn more about Christ. Now, the verses I just read to you, there are several things that are apparent in our verse. Number one, that Christ and the church are one body. In verse number 30, because we are members of his body, that Christ cares for his church. I've already mentioned this in a previous message, that it is he who gives his he gives his life for his church, the bride. He nourishes now the bride and cherishes her. And, of course, the husband is to also do that to his wife. And the reason why he does that, Christ does that to us, is because the church, the bride, is his body. In verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. And then, in verse 31, the husband and wife are one flesh. Now, we have this picture of one body, one flesh. That means that because the husband and wife are one, the care the husband has for himself, he has for his wife. In other words, what he does for her, her he does for himself. In verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Self-love is the apparent thing there and the natural thing for anyone, a man, to take care of his own body. Now, the man should love his wife because she is his body. That's the oneness that comes in in this passage of Scripture that the husband is to love his wife as being a very part of his own body. So if he misuses his body, he misuses that relationship between himself and his wife. Actually, if he abuses himself, he abuses her. If he treats himself wrong, he treats her wrong. And if he, if he, if he treats her wrong, he treats himself wrong. It it's, goes back and forth. So, see, Christ loves his own body the church but there's also a mystery connected to the union uh, in marriage so the bible that's why the bible does say that this is a great mystery that marriage is a copy of christ and the church and the copy refers to human marriage between a husband and a wife so it becomes the picture of it, and let's just look down at verse number 32. I want you to look at a word. That word great, it says, this mystery is great. This means the marriage 
is a profound institution. Marriage is a profound institution. It is the union between Christ and his people, the fact that they are one flesh, he declares to be a great mystery, which means simply that this institution is like no other institution. This institution does, gives a picture like no other institution gives a picture. And of course, it was James Montgomery Boyce who said, it is something, this passage is something that taxes our sanctified understanding, meaning it's, it's difficult to unpack. It's difficult to understand everything that is here in this passage of scripture. Yes, the mystery that is now revealed to the people who believe in Christ in a sense, uh, there is a reluctance and an inadequacy that we sense when we come to a portion of scripture like this, because it is the unveiling of the profound depth of the love of God. The profound depth of the love of God is seen not only in Christ loving the church, but also in the husband loving his wife. So marriage is of profound significance, and I just want to throw out two things to you in several different ways by way of observation. The first way is it is profound in that it moves people from the close bond of parents and, and, parents and children to a new closest bond of husband and wife. Notice in verse 31... It says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. That that very term join literally can be translated to be cemented together or to be glued together. This is what God does when two people, a man and a woman, get married. They, he cements two people together and they become one person. So husbands are to love their wife so that she gets the sense that her marriage is strong, that her marriage is unbreakable, and able to endure the most severe trials. The husband is the one that should, in his home, Make it a place that his wife feels loved and needed and special and secure. And a wife is to do everything she can to make her home a place where her husband is honored and respected. I probably won't get that far today because of what I want to cover this morning. So he and she are joined in the closest relationship anyone can experience on this earth. That's what makes it profound. That's only one reason why it's profound. A second thing why it is profound, which I want to spend my time on this morning, is the union of body with body. If you notice in verse 31, it says, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, what does that mean? That means, at least partially, there is a vital sexual relationship that God has given to the man and to the woman. And under this, there are several observations, too. Number one, that marital love is numerically singular, it says we are told in, in marriage that the two people, male and female, are to become one flesh. Again, Ephesians reiterates this, coming from the uh, Old Testament book of Genesis, the foundation of this particular doctrine, when the Lord first instituted and created marriage. But if you notice, again, in verse number 31, look at, closely at the math. 
the math seems to be a bit unusual. Because when it comes to marriage and sex, for that matter, one plus one equals one. The marriage of one man and one woman in a loving, lifelong commitment to one another was created by God and affirmed by Jesus. It is the God-given environment in which sex can be enjoyed to the maximum. In fact, marital intimacy was deliberately designed by God to deepen the oneness in marriage. It was to deepen the singularity in marriage. Now, today, if you consider that, that is why any kind of intimate relationship outside marriage causes great harm to the people involved. Just quickly take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul tells the Corinthian church something very, very powerful about what they were doing to wreck the oneness in their marriages. And if you look at verse chapter 6 and verse number 16, it says, Or do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 16, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. See, the Corinthian church was, they were involved with multiple partner type of relationships. And Paul is writing, and he is saying to them, listen, sexual oneness brings, sexual union brings oneness only between one man and one woman. So if you're doing that, he gives some advice in that passage of Scripture, in verse number 18, he says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. So if he sins against his own body, what's the principle? He sins against his wife. He sins against the Lord. In verse number 19, some more advice. Or do you not know by way of knowledge that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So see, the responsibility that we have with our body is always before God, and we can either dishonor God with our body, or we can give him glory with our body. What we do with our bodies is important. So see, marriage protects us that we can enjoy the fulfillment of the deepest desire for closeness and commitment. All of us have it. All of us have it. There's a second observation in our passage in verse number 31, that marital love is deeply intimate, affectionate, and pleasurable. It says, the two shall become one flesh, one body. So we're living in an age in which the sanctity of marriage is looked at with very little regard. And because there's been so many taboos surrounding the sexual relations, relationships, many people, including Christians, have a distorted view of its purpose especially its function, marriage is grossly understood. Biblically, a healthy sexual relationship is not only permitted in marriage, it is commanded in marriage by God himself. That physical intimacy is a duty, not a luxury or a necessary evil. It has been declared by God to be good, 
And when we don't use it the way God intended it, it becomes something that is sinful. So why did God make the intimate sexual union between a man and a woman so pleasurable? God did that. God, from, from the start, made people what? Male and female. That even the, the human anatomy has been so designed by God in such a way that even the nervous system has been made with a heightened sensitivity with a goal for pleasure. God did that. As if God is describing a relationship that is not only necessary for having children, but goes way beyond that to being pleasurable, to being intensely physical, and yes, to even being spiritual. But only within the bounds of marriage. There was a woman who wrote a book. There's a little book that was written by some guy who said, if you could ask God something, and he has a bunch of questions in there. And one of the questions somebody asked this guy as he wrote this book was, why does God hate sex? And he, in his research, he came across this woman who wasn't a believer, wasn't a believer at all. She was just somebody who was observing what was going on in America, and she wrote a book. And she wrote a book, and the name of her book was called Damage. I just want to give you what she observed. She viewed how damaging the misuse of the sexual relationship was in our culture. And this is what she said, and I quote, the idea today is that sleeping around doesn't matter. I'm not making any kind of religious point here. I'm just saying that if you sleep around with enough people, you're pretty much on your way to guaranteeing that you will not recognize profound erotic love when it comes to you. You pay the price for it. It's, I'm not saying it is a moral price or that it is a moral issue. Of course it is. You pay a psychological price, and you might miss it when it happens. Of course, biblically, the consequences are much more than psychological. But here's a woman that is just trying to write out there to say, listen, I don't, I, she doesn't understand all the theology behind it, but she does understand, listen, the marriage relationship is special. It's, it's to be used in a special way. See, so there is a deep, intimate, affectionate pleasure that God has built into the marriage. And when we understand that, we begin to understand also how much Christ loved the church. But we can only understand it in that context. We can understand it theoretically, but we can also understand it practically that it is no mistake that God designed it that way. It is no mistake that God designed it within a particular context. But there's another observation that I have in our text is that this one flesh means that when a man and woman come together, they take their clothes off. Yes, nakedness. Now, that means this, that marital love, marital love is without shame. Now, I want, you to, I want to take your minds and I want to go back to the book of Genesis. So go back there with me because I want to see where, you, where this is coming from. I want you to see where it's coming from. In Genesis chapter 3, verse number 7, Because I want you to go back there to just view what Adam and Eve fell, uh, were involved with when they fell into sin. Something happened to them, and it is recorded very specifically in Scripture. It says this in Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both of them, of course, this is when they sinned, they disobeyed God. 
Then the eyes of both of them were open. And then notice what it says. I, I don't want you to miss this. Then they knew that they were what? They knew they were naked. That means before that, that moment, they didn't know that. When God walked with them in the garden, they didn't know that. They had no idea that that was even a problem. But soon as sin entered in, and now the separation came between God and man, man was no longer protected. So what did they do? Look at verse number 7. It says, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And verse number 8 Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse number 9 of Genesis 3, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he says, I heard a sound in the garden, and I was afraid. Notice in verse number 10, I was afraid because I was what? Naked. And I hid myself. And then look what God says in verse number 11. And he says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, the man and woman now know that whatever's going on is not right. In fact, this is where we see shame come in because of sin. Here's the picture of not only being afraid of God and hiding from him, but being ashamed to show yourself. And so they, of course, nakedness in the Bible is used for a strong sign of shame and humiliation. And then on this other side of the coin, redemption is connected with shame and humiliation also, in so that we must be covered with clothing, especially the clothing of the righteousness of Christ, in order to be brought back into oneness with God the Father through Jesus Christ. He provides that, that clothing. So the first experience of nakedness was in reference to sin, where the man and the woman were ashamed to show themselves, so hid and covered themselves with fig leaves. And they were embarrassed in their sin and in their nakedness. So what does God do? You know what God does? They sewed fig leaves together. God kills an animal. Here's the first time an animal is killed in Scripture. Of course, remember, any time an animal is killed and their blood, the blood of that animal was shed and then the skin was torn off that animal, well, what does God do? He kills an animal, he sheds the blood so that he could take the skin of the animal and make clothing to cover the shame and the nakedness. Just think of it. What other creatures on this earth go out of their way to make artificial garments to cover their bodies. I never saw a squirrel putting on a coat. I never saw a cow. Of course, people who like animals get, you know, coats for them. I think it's crazy and ridiculous, you know. But, hey, that's your thing. That, that's, that's fine with me. But nonetheless, we're the only ones. We're the only ones who do that. that. That means that every time we put on clothing, it should remind us of the shame of sin, of the separation that sin has caused between God, and the cost to cover that sin. Not only the cost of the Lord killing an animal, shedding its blood, taking the garments to wrap the people around it because that was the first picture of what Christ would do on the cross, that he would become the Lamb of God who sheds his blood for those so we can be clothed in Christ's righteousness.
In fact, I was looking at a passage of scripture and it, this always baffled me when I was reading uh, uh, in Romans chapter 8, you know the passage. You know, you know when Paul at the, at the end of Romans chapter 8 is trying to encourage them, and he says to the people, listen, you guys, because of what Christ has done, you're super conquerors. And then he says, he goes down, and at the end of the passage, he says this to them. He says, who will separate you from the love of Christ? Question, right? Will tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? No. Or famine? No. Or nakedness? What is he saying there? He was saying, listen, shame will no longer separate you that was caused by sin from the love of Christ because of what Jesus did. He removes the shame. So we can come into his presence again, so we're not afraid of God anymore, so we can have fellowship with him again. See, so the word of God again says to Adam, are you there still in Genesis? Look over to Genesis chapter 4. It says in Genesis 4, 1, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she says, I have gotten a male child with the help of the Lord. Now, of course, that word relations, it could be translated to know. Actually, it is the Hebrew word to know, but it, it doesn't, doesn't mean just to, to know your wife in, uh, and have knowledge of her. It means to know another person at a profound level of intimacy. And what is he talking about there? He's talking about the union that a man and a woman enjoy that God has created only in the context of marriage. So, see, we long for a place where nakedness would no longer be shame. Now, as I see this morning, everyone did get up this morning, hopefully took a shower, and put your clothes on, right? And you came to church. Now, I don't think you get up in the morning and forget to put your clothes on when you walk out the door, right? I don't think you forget that. Why is it? Why, is, why are we so conscious of covering ourselves? Of course, some women should cover themselves more and be more modest. But why is it that we, we are so conscious of, of this? It's because of what happened back in the garden. It's because we realize now the church is now being what? Cleansed. It's not perfect yet. We're still being cleansed. And the things, the last thing that has to be done with is our body has to go to the grave so we can get a new body and be in the presence of God in perfection. So see, we long for a place where nakedness would not be shame anymore and that safe refuge for human nakedness is ordained by God in the marriage bed alone. A husband and wife know themselves better on all levels than most people that are not married. Because really, uh, nakedness does involve the lack of physical clothing and it includes being scrutinized at the glance of another person. The other person is vulnerable because no one knows you better than anyone else besides your spouse, except for God. And, and that's why divorce is so painful because the person who knows them the best rejects them. The pain goes on and on and has devastating consequences. So see, there's a place where you can be unclothed and have a taste of heaven with the goal of unashamed, exhilarating, enjoyable pleasure, marriage, is that safe refuge where you can 
be intimate, physically, emotionally, in a relationship with another person, whether it be the husband or the wife. And for believers in Christ Jesus, it is also a spiritual relationship, which the marriage couple experiences a taste of the pleasure and the joy that they will experience when they are with Christ in heaven. It is a picture of that. It is about Christ, because he says in our passage of Scripture very clearly, this is in reference to Christ. But the picture's there every day, all around us. See, sex without the absolute commitment of marriage is what God hates. And people who make themselves vulnerable sexually at a deep level of intimacy without the marriage commitment is at great risk to their soul. When I was preaching in Hebrews chapter 13 in verse number 4, you remember what it said there. It said, let the marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. See, our culture has caved in to the sexual sin in which the virtue of chastity is almost non-existence. You know, if you're reading through Jeremiah, one couple times Jeremiah says this about the people. He says, listen... These people, when they commit their abominations before God, they don't even know how to blush. Meaning what? Their conscience is so seared, they don't even experience the shame. The guilt that comes with sin. The good guilt that comes with sin that, that brings you to the place where you say, oh, I'm, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner, what do I do? The message brings a person to Christ. So, see, being naked is a picture of being in the presence of God, unafraid, without guilt, without shame, accompanied by the pleasure of God's presence. That's where it's leading to. That's the picture it's giving us. Again, in that book written by a man who said, if you can ask God one question, would it be, he said this, as the creator of sex, God has something to say about how we use it. God has something to say about how we use it. And God made sex extremely pleasurable, but he also made it extremely powerful. That's why the Song of Solomon warns us three times. And of course, what is the Song of Solomon about? It's about Love between a man and a woman. It's about marital love. That's what it's about. Now, just take your Bibles over there. Now, if you, don't, you haven't been to the book of Song of Solomon lately, it's Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right in smack in the middle of your Bible somewhere. And I want you to see the three places that it says that. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse number 7, it gives a warning to those who are going to at least anticipate a relationship with someone that they will marry. And this is the three warnings he gives. In chapter 2, verse number 7, it says, I adjure you, or I warn you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the Hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. In other words, don't awaken this part of intimacy until it's time. Another passage, Solomon, Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you again, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Again, the warning, 
do not get involved with this kind of intimacy until it's time. In other words, until you have a marriage covenant and an engagement, and then you finally consummate the marriage. And then in Solomon chapter 8 and verse number 4, he says this to those of his audience, I want to, you to swear, O daughter of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Don't arouse this love until it's time, and the only time for this kind of love is in the marriage relationship. This all means that any and all acts of sexual looseness represents an act of injustice, injustice toward someone else and, of course, a sin toward God, that all sexual looseness before marriage symbolizes the robbing of the other of that virginity which ought to be brought to the marriage bed alone, period, created by God. I say this all the time. When I was a teenager out there, and you get bombarded every day by all kinds of stuff that tempts you, I didn't have this. I didn't have the word of God to, to sh convict me. I was convicted about things like this, but I had nowhere to go with my conviction. I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I would go to confessional. That did a lot of good. And it didn't do anything. I didn't know Christ in the way I know him today. I didn't know the word of God. So young people, I just want to say to you, and, and everyone who was here, that for you to have this from the word of God is the, so precious because it gives you the reason why you should wait until you get married. Do you understand that? I think the, the little kids need to get this in their head young as possible. Because we live in a world that has lost its direction completely in this area. There is no blushing anywhere in our culture. And sex has become such a dirty, disgusting thing from our produced by our media that it has lost its preciousness and sacredness. It's the church that must keep that. It's Christian families that must keep it before our kids that they would wait until they are going to be married to experience this. Remember what it said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 3? It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as proper, as is proper among saints. Now, there's other passages of scripture I can go to, but there are some things, there are three reasons why that really rise out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which I'd like you to turn to. Uh, this morning, because in 1 Thessalonians 4, we get the picture, we get the message from Paul to the Thessalonian church about the will of God. And if you notice in verse number 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And what, what does it say in verse 3? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And there are three things to consider why you should do that in this passage of scripture. Number one is that you should remember the Lord is a avenger. He's an avenger of wrongs. Verse number six, 
says this. It says, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the manner, in the manner, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. See, Christians are to avoid such conduct because God is the one who punishes. In other words, God will take action against people who sinned like this. This is something Paul already solemnly warned this church about. Contemporary men and women need to remember that God is the avenger of sexual wrongs, both in this life and the next. So see, the first reason to avoid such sexual misconduct is appeals to the fear of the consequences of disobedience, that God will avenge it. God knows what's going on. He is not hid from these things. You're not doing anything in secret. See, this passage, as well as others like it, are meant to be a strong, forceful proposition intended to instill in the believer a sense of the seriousness of impurity and the fear of the Lord that will keep them from that impurity. And I think a professing believer who continues in impurity without genuine repentance can have no assurance of salvation and should expect the discipline of the Lord. And if that person is truly saved, they will heed the warnings of the word of God and the discipline and will repent and then give evidence of that repentance. And part of evidence of that repentance is simply this. I will keep myself pure until the day I say I do and I'm pronounced husband and wife and walk down that aisle and then at that point it is a blessing before God. It is exactly how God intended it to be. So you and I are warned today not to take light, lightly the, the, the society's lackadaisical attitude concerning sexual conduct. Remember this, a just God and a coming day of judgment are factors that cannot be left out of consideration when dealing with moral practices. A second reason why this sort of conduct needs to be completely avoided is also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 7, why it says, For God has not called, you, called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. In other words, God has called us to holiness. We must always remember who called us to salvation and for what purpose he called us to salvation was to sanctify us. Remember, the Lord is cleansing and sanctifying and purifying the bride right now. So the second reason is pointing us to, to look backward to what God has done, that our effectual call to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation also means we were called to a certain kind of living, that God had a definite purpose in mind concerning the way that we should live our everyday life. He he had a purpose in mind, the way that we should conduct ourselves in relationships. So all immoralities must be avoided as being inconsistent with God's gracious call. You cannot live as if you don't know what God requires anymore. It was Warren Worsby. He was an old-time commentator, kind of wrote devotional commentaries. And he, uh, Ron Worsby tells of a church member who criticized her pastor because he was preaching against sin in the lives of Christians. And after all, she says, sin in the life of a believer is different from sin in the life of an unsaved person. And he replied to her, yes, Reply the pastor, it's much worse. It is, it is true. Christians are not under condemnation of sin, but it is also true that they are not exempt from the harvest of sorrow that comes when we sow to the flesh. 
There's a third reason in our passage in 1 Thessalonians why this sort of conduct needs to be completely avoided. Look at verse number 8. It's this, that God's Spirit is our ultimate standard. It says in verse number 8, Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Remember, the context of Ephesians is talking about being controlled by the Spirit. Anyone who treats sexual sin as no big deal is actually treating God and his word as of no account. So see, whoever despises the teaching about holiness is not just despising some human rule. They are despising God himself. They are saying, I know better or I want to do what I want to do and I know better than you. They have forgotten that God is the avenger, also that he has given the Holy Spirit to empower saints against their struggle for holiness. Is this not a struggle? Is this not a battle in our lives to be, remain pure in our minds also? It is a struggle the Holy Spirit of God has given for that very reason. So to go on to live in impurity is a direct insult to the divine giver and a sin against the Holy Spirit who is the power for us unto a holy life. So if we're going to fight against sexual impurity, we must view it like God views it. And I already read the passage of Scripture in Corinthians, but really sexual impurity misuses the body. Sexual impurity brings Christ into our sin. Sexual impurity is sin against the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sexual impurity misuses something that belongs to God. And what's that? Our bodies belong to God as believers. So God, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes our body the temple of God. It is by walking in the Spirit that we have victory over the lust of the flesh. It is as we yield to the Spirit, he creates in us a holy desire to be pure. The Word of God creates in us a holy desire to be pure. And he empowers us to walk in holiness and not to be detoured by our lust or the temptations of the world or the passions of the flesh. So to write off what God commands as nothing is to invite the judgment of God and again also grieves God's spirit. Now, those are some tough things, but I believe we all need to hear it, and I think we need to pass it along to people who have never heard it, because it is so incredibly vital, because the marriage relationship is a picture of how Christ loves the church. We cannot let that be obscured in the church. So, here's some at least helpful steps to avoid and get free from such disabling sin. I think, to throw some things out to you, I think you must avoid all, any person, any person who might lead you into temptation. You have to cut off all companionship with persons who have been involved with you in your wrongdoing. I think also you must avoid a situation that might lead into temptation. Too much time alone with nothing to do places you in the way of temptation. You must be a person who is active in some work or hobby, study of God's word, memorization of God's word. You've got to avoid every book, magazine, TV program, movie, video, computer program, internet site that might prove sexually stimulating. And remember, instead, we must read God's word. We must go, constantly go back to the word of God and let the word of God wash us and cleanse us. It's the word of God that does the washing. And then put those scriptures in our heart. Hide them there. Treasure them there. So those scriptures at times of temptation can provide help 
when it's the most powerful. Of course, listening to the preached word of God to renew your mind and get God's point of view is God's will also. And you also must have a regular time of prayer. You must be practicing calling on God when sudden temptation strikes. And before that, before it strikes, God will answer the request for help. He wants to win the battle with us. You must make yourself accountable to some other mature male and women to women in the congregation, another woman or man in the congregation. And I think ultimately, if I was to take a conclusion from Ephesians, I would say this. The one major thing that's going to keep you pure and keep you away from and putting to death your sin and putting on righteousness is this. Here's the number one, top one. Fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ and learn to please him. That is the motivator for not sinning. Love God until your affections are moved. Until when you do something wrong, you know that you have sinned not against law, but against love. And by God's spirit, it is possible to put to death any sin for a believer. And Jesus Christ stands ready to forgive you for past sins and to enable you to keep free from such sins in the future that will become debilitating and disabling to you. But we we must be willing. We must cooperate with the spirit of God to, to be casting those sins off and, of course, running to the mercy of God for deliverance. See, it doesn't mean people do not have ethical and moral standards. Everybody does. But when they do not acknowledge God's standards for morality, they are guided by their own degrading passions to make their own standard, and their own standard always falls short of God's standard. So if I to throw out to you how to build your own protection against slipping, I can give you some practical things that when you're going out with someone of the opposite sex, whether it's on a date or uh, whatever you want to call it, stay active, go with other people, don't allow too much time alone with the other person, plan your time together so that it is filled with absorbing wholesome activity. Also, don't lower your inhibitions and dull your judgment while you're with other people. Keep in control. Depend on the Holy Spirit of God to keep you self-controlled. And don't allow your, your mind to get all tied up with sexual things. You have to divert your thoughts onto other interests, wholesome interests. It's like what, what uh, Paul said to the Philippians, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on those things or on these things. Also, you have to avoid any kind of self-defeating behavior. You might say, as a guy, I can't stop looking at girls or girls can't stop looking at guys. Of course, you have, to, you have to see, but you surely don't have to practice and consistently and persistence, persistently watch. It was like Job who says, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze upon a virgin. I'll look away. See, when it comes to this sin, we have to run. We have to... We have to 
drastically put measures in that is going to take care of it. I mean, if a doctor puts you on a strict diet and says, listen, no sweets, no carbs, it would not be wise for you to spend time gazing into the bakery window or taking a ride, uh, uh, a trip to Paris and looking in their pastry window, which is unbelievable. <laughs> See, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, when, when you start looking at Boston creams and jelly donuts and Napoleon's cannolis and sorted Italian cookies and cakes, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to do it. So you can't, so you have to make a covenant with your eyes. You can't be feeding your mind on things that's going to drag you down. And of course, that would mean that any kind of pornography, any kind of things that are going to cause your eyes to, and your mind to go off into some kind of fantasy land is, it should be just cut out completely. It has no place for a Christian, none. And I know that there's very, very easy, matter of fact, I don't think you even have to go looking for it today. They pump it into your computer. So the Bible tells us that we need to flee sexual temptation. Fight, flight is, is, is really usually the best approach to sexual temptation. It was Paul who told young Timothy, a pastor, of the Ephesian church, what did he say? Now flee from youthful lusts. But then he said this, and this is also putting off something. He says, now listen, then you have to pursue righteous behavior, for he says, here's the second part of the verse, but pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. See, if you're going to flee, then you must also pursue the right thinking and living. And that's, this also assumes something else that, uh, and I'm coming to a close, is this, that if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you cannot go out with someone who's an unbeliever and you cannot marry them. All right? You cannot do that. course we have to resist temptation that's part of us growing in the Lord we by relying on the strength of the Lord where it says in Psalm 119 11 thy word I have what Tre treasured in my heart it's there in my heart that I might not sin against you and from this message I want you to keep the line between the unmarried state and the married state and draw the distinctions clearly because it's so clouded today in our life. Chastity before marriage is what pleases God. In fact, it is God's will. And then, of course, view marriage as something set apart, something sacred, something special, something so holy and so significant that it pictures how Christ loves his people. Think of it like that. And it's a right guaranteeing a very special place and privilege that we can experience an intimacy with someone who is our wife or husband that gives us a sense of the pleasure that we will ultimately have with Christ someday. That's why it's there. Got awful quiet this morning. See, this mystery is great. And the right reason why it is is because marriage is a profound institution. And it has a profound message. And it's the church, it's us, who say we believe in Christ that must keep it. We must be about helping each other be pure and holy and somebody who's falling into that sin to rescue them from the flames and bring them back. Let's pray. Lord, may we be 
in command of our bodies today. May we have the strength to flee from temptation. Not only that we find happiness in this life and in you, but also that we might stand before you unashamed one day because our lives have honored the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because even now, Lord, we have our understanding the profundity of the institution of marriage more than we did before. So raise the level, raise the bar in our mind, Lord. Raise the seriousness that you put on this subject so, Lord, we endeavor each day to be pure in our mind, in our heart, in our will, in our actions towards each other, and that we pray for one another that we would that they would stay pure and that we would help them to do so. I pray, Lord, the word of God would wash your church. I pray, Lord, it would wash out all the garbage that has been put there by the world. And I pray, Lord, that it would wash us to the point where we don't want to sin against the love that you have given to us by the cross of Christ. Thank you, Lord. It's by that cross you cover us of our nakedness. You cover us with your righteousness. You take our sin and you nail it to the cross and you impute upon our account your righteousness that someday we will be perfect in your presence. But in the meantime, Lord, you are perfecting us. You, you, are, you are cleansing us. You are setting us apart. You are making us more like you. Please, Lord, let us give ourselves over to the Spirit of God that that may be a reality every day and that we may bear fruit and have victory over sin. Lord, don't allow us to go along in our old ways after hearing this truth. For, Lord, great... This mystery is great because it says in your word, I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. Feeling, Lord, this morning I only touched the hem of the garment of our passage. But, Lord, continue to give us a sense on where you called us and the intimacy that we can enjoy with you even now and in our marriage relationships and ultimately as the ultimate purpose of the church is to be made perfect, where someday, Lord, we will enjoy you in eternal bliss with no obstacles. That is going to be a day that is we're looking forward to. So I pray now, Lord, you would enable us by your spirit to do what we need to do to give you glory. And I praise in Christ's name. Amen.